good to have everybody. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just want to uh, thank you for uh, your love this morning. And Father, I just want to thank you for your grace, uh, your life-changing grace. Father, I, I just thank you for the way uh, your grace flows over my life and fills up all the spaces in my heart and in my mind. And uh, Father, in your grace, I just seek you. Uh, I love you dearly. Uh, because I see what you've done in my life, how you've transformed me, how you've made me better, how you've made me new. Uh, so I just thank you for that. And Father, we thank you for this study in Romans. and uh, uh, It's just so inspiring to me, Father. I thank you. I thank you for Paul. Thank you for the fact that he was moved by the Spirit to write this letter to the church in Rome. And I know we see his passion uh, in the words that he writes, and we thank you for that. And uh, we thank you for the gospel that he so proudly and powerfully proclaimed to all that who, who would listen. Um, so we just pray, Father, that you will help us uh, as we grow uh, in your word, as we grow in the gospel message, and as, as we become your children and your people. And we just pray that you bless us as a church family and a church community and just pray that you be with us in our study this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, come on down. It's like we've got a full house. It's a beautiful morning, so everybody's here this morning. We didn't have any trouble with seating last week. It was a snowstorm. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hopefully we'll have enough chairs. You know, there's uh, something I'll say uh, while we're getting seated. I was going to ask you guys to uh, bear with me in my advancing age. Uh, it's amazing what happens when you get in front of a bunch of people. All kinds of crazy things start happening in your mind. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I got Angela and Corey's name mixed up. And of course, I've known both these ladies a long time. And you guys will appreciate this. I, I, I called on Justin several times last week. I'm pretty sure I called him Jason. And uh, I, I was going to tell him this morning, you know, if you'll keep making great comments, I'll call you by your right name. <laughs> So, but, uh, you know, you just kind of sometimes go blank. You know, you have these, these passages that you love, that you've known all your life, and you can't quote them anymore. And you know these people you've known for decades, and you don't remember their name. You kind of have one of those uh-oh moments. What am I going to do now? But uh, I'm doing the best I can. I, and I know I'm in a room full of people who want to give me grace. So I, I thank you for that. We're in Romans 7 this morning, and, you know, I just love the way that Paul builds momentum uh, in his case for the gospel, particularly uh, in chapters 5 through chapter 8. Uh, he just lays this beautiful foundation for us, uh, for me personally, to build, uh, to build faith upon. And I, 
We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. You know, chapter 7 is a, is a challenging chapter. It's a difficult chapter. It's not one you just kind of lightly read over and say, oh, I got that. It's not that kind of a chapter at all. Uh, I want to lead us up. I, I want to show you how Paul is building this case for the gospel and bringing us up to chapter 7. You remember at the, in the beginning of chapter 5, uh, he says, since we have now been justified by faith in Christ Jesus, we're at peace at, with God. And we talked when we were there, we talked about what a beautiful thing it is to be at peace with God. It means we're no longer at war with him. It means he's now on our side. Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. And Paul goes on to say, we, we now have access to this grace in which we now stand. And it's this, this this idea that our salvation is secure. Uh, we're, we're not falling out of grace. We're standing in it. We're firmly standing in it. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea. Later in that chapter, he says that, uh, that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He goes on and says, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he talks about how we are now under the reign of grace. We're no longer under the reign of sin, but we're under the reign of grace. We now live in the kingdom of grace. He says, sin increases, but grace abounds. Uh, so it's just this beautiful thought, and it's a beautiful thought to me, that grace wins. Grace wins. And, uh, you know, that's where it becomes personal, really personal to me. Because I find myself at the foot of the cross, and I'm there because I have destroyed my life because of the choices that I have made. And I find myself in there in pieces. My life is in pieces. And I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And He reaches down and He picks me up. And He puts me back together again. He tells me He loves me. He wants what's best for me. He says, I want to give you a new start. I want to give you a fresh start. I see what you've done to your life. I want to give you another chance. And that's a beautiful thing. And you see, it changes how I feel completely. Because I'm not putting him off at a distance anymore. He's not far away. He's very close. And my attitude toward him completely changes because I want to please him. I want to know him. You see, I've fallen in love with him. I want to be like him. I, wonder, I want to understand what plans he has for my life. So we see... Uh, so I see in my life that my response to grace completely changes everything for me. And I, that's why at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may, may abound? He says, by no means. Don't you remember that when you were baptized with Christ into His death? That old life was buried. It was put away. You were raised with Christ in baptism to lead a new life. And that new life doesn't resemble the old life. At all. It's completely different. It's so much better. And in chapter 6, we talk about the idea of sanctification. Uh, that we've been set apart to be holy. We've been called to be holy. God has called us to be holy. And so we see this transformation 
process going on in our lives. We no longer present the members of our body to sin, but we present the members of our body to righteousness. We become slaves to righteousness. And we look at obedience completely different. We want to obey the one who has saved us, the one who's given us so much grace. We don't look at obedience in a way in the way that we used to because we become slaves to righteousness. And that kind of brings us, I, th- I think, to chapter 7 because there's an elephant in the room now, I think, at the end of chapter 6, particularly for the Jews. Uh, because Paul is saying we've been justified by faith apart from the law. So what, what does that mean, Paul? Does that mean the law has no value? To, to the Jew, that was a problem. Because, you see, the Jew upheld the law. The law was very important in their lives. They honored the law. The law is what distinguished them from the unholy people around them. It made them special. Uh, The law was always an overwhelming burden for the Jew, though. Uh, In fact, the Jew would refer to the law as a yoke. You know, the kind of harness you would put on an animal in order to get hard labor out of that animal. Jew would refer to the law as a yoke, but they were proud of that because, you see, the yoke, again, made them different from everybody else. Peter said something interesting in in Acts 15 about the law. I remember it's it's the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, The Jewish Christians are trying to impose uh, the Old Testament law on the Gentile converts. Peter says, now then, why do you try to test God? by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. So that brings us to the beginning of chapter 7. We'll read that with you. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, we have Paul using this illustration of marriage. Um, And what he says in in, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, is that the law only applies to the living. Uh, If I'm dead, the law doesn't apply to me. Uh, So that's the first thing he says. Any, Any thoughts about that? The law only applies to the living? 
You ever thought of it that way? I think that's why this illustration of marriage uh, illustrates what he's trying to say pretty well. When he talks about uh, uh, this woman whose husband has died, uh, how she's set, set free uh, from the law of marriage because he has died to marry another, uh, to have a new relationship. Uh, and I, I think that's basically what Paul is trying to tell us, that you know we have a new relationship now in Christ. Uh, we have died to the law. Uh, again, a hard thing for a Jew to hear uh, that we have died to the law. But we have this new relationship with Christ, but it doesn't destroy the value of the law. We're going to talk about that some more. Uh, and Paul says the purpose of our new relationship is that we may bear fruit to God. And I think Paul's talking about the fruit of righteousness. We have this new relationship that now we can bear fruit which wasn't true uh, when we had this relationship uh, with the law. Uh, I, th- I think Paul, uh, and I think we need to understand that the law couldn't justify us, and it also couldn't sanctify us. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the idea that salvation comes, the salvation that we receive is really a, f- a fulfilling of the law, but at the same time, we're liberated from the law. We fulfill the law in our salvation, but we are also liberated from it at the same time. Uh, so the, the idea is that this new relationship allows us to bear fruit, fruits of, fruit of righteousness to God. Uh, and then we have this idea, this then and now uh, idea where, where Paul says, uh, uh, he says, in, uh, he says, but now. But now, those, those two words, but now. So we have, again, this transition between the old and the new. When he says, but now we are released from the law. Uh, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the righteous code. You know, I think Paul's life is a good example of that. Uh, remember in Philippians, he said, uh, uh, he said in regard to legal righteousness, that he was faultless. Paul was a law keeper. In fact, he was driven by the law to persecute the church of God. Uh, but I think Paul understood when he found Christ that, that, that it, it, everything had changed for him, that he was willing to give up all of that. All those things he, he uh, found great pride in, he was willing to give up all of it. And we know that he was a law keeper above all law keepers. But uh, he, he found the new way, uh, the new way of the Spirit uh, and not of the written code. Let's, let's go on and read uh, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what, is to, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. covetousness. For apart from the law, sin, sin lies dead. Uh, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that, I, that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me 
and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what is the purpose? I think Paul tells us in this passage, what is the purpose of God's good law? Does it have value? What is the purpose of God's good law? Point out sin. Yeah, shows us what sin is. Before that law, did we have as good an understanding of sin as we did once the law was given? I don't think so. What else? Yeah. Is that how it's phrased here? Sinful beyond measure. Right. Um, I like that a lot. And I was just thinking about, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe an example I could think of is a lawmaker. Somebody who the law is, is on paper. It's something that you, you debate in Congress mm-hmm. or something. And, and all of a sudden, you make decisions that are going to affect masses of people. There, there are going to be children hurting. There are going to be people out on the street. Right. And to you, it's just legislature. You know? Right, right. And then all of a sudden, you come face to face with, wow, this is what's happening. This is what I've done. This right. Is what right. Yeah. And I think that that's somehow how the law is supposed to work in my life. It's at first it's something like, okay, if I do these things, I go to heaven. If I do these things, I go to hell. Right. I'm safe. But I don't understand the depth. I don't understand right. the darkness. I don't understand the hurt. Yeah. And somehow the law needs to reveal. Yeah. Oh, wretched man that I am. Right. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, David. Yeah. I think the law reveals um, how he loves us. I think the law reveals uh, how he knows what's good for us and what's bad for us. Yeah, very good. It doesn't reveal his heart in that he's a lawgiver judge. Right. Although he certainly, you know, we can talk about that in some other context. But if we look at the law as do's and don'ts, and, you know, I'm going to make God mad, but he's, he's saying, look, I created you, I know you. I know it's going to harm your relationships. Mm-hmm. It's going to be bad for your mind. I know it's going to harm your soul. I know what happens when you love money. I know what happens right. when you're unkind to strangers. I, I know the bad things that will happen. Please, please don't do that. And yeah. it expresses that first in law. Yeah. yeah. It's really his heart. Yeah. And then express, he summarizes it and changes his approach on his closeness with us, I would say, right. in the new covenant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that Jeff and David are right on. I. My attitude towards the law changes because of grace. It completely changes. You see, I want to know the law. I want to know what breaks the heart of God. I want to know how to love Him better. I want to know what's important to Him. I find that in the law. I find that in the law. So I have a completely different attitude towards it. Yeah, John. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the purpose of God's good law. A couple things. The law reveals sin. The law provokes sin. The law provokes sin. You ever thought of that? 
The law provokes sin. How? Paul says, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment creates a surge of rebellion in our hearts. Do uh, you see that? Once we know what it is, yeah, that's, that's forbidden fruit, right? Adam and Eve, that's, you told me one thing I couldn't do. But God, that's too much. We're talking about forbidden fruit. We just can't handle it. We don't want anything to be forbidden to us. So it, it creates a surge of rebellion in our heart. Right. Yeah. 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 Very good. And you see, we're talking about a surge of rebellion. There was rebellion there already, but when the law came, there was a surge of rebellion. The rebellion even increased even the more. I think. And see, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment creates a desire uh, to sin in ways that weren't thought of before, which is an amazing idea that we can be so creative in our sin, that we can come up with different ways to break this law of God, uh, to break his heart. And I like this. I think Paul says the law brings us to the end of ourselves because the law brings death. We die because of the law. Uh, it brings us to the end of ourselves. We realize who we are. Uh, we realize what we've done when we come to terms uh, with the law. And uh, how, it, how it points out my weakness and my sin and my rebellion. And uh, so God's law has a purpose, a good purpose, a holy purpose. Uh, and my relationship to that law should change based on the grace that He's given me. I had no ability uh, to uphold that law before. Uh, but now by the Holy Spirit, I can appreciate it. I can love it. Uh, I can want it to transform my life. Now we come to 14 through 25. You know, this may be the most challenging part uh, of chapter 7. And, and I might point out in verse 7 that... Uh, uh, that Paul starts speaking about I. He becomes first person in, in verse 7 of chapter 7, uh, which I think is something important for you to consider. Paul in this whole discussion, is this is first person stuff Paul's talking about. This is not a we thing. This is an I thing. And I think that's important. It's particularly in this section of Scripture when Paul's talking about the struggle. Paul's talking about himself. Uh, so he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What do you think about this? This is the Apostle Paul, first person, talking this way. This, this man that we revere, hold up. Does this give you, a, does this give you any problem? Any difficulty with Paul? Interesting the contrast with this, with him saying that um, in regards to legalistic righteousness, yeah. it's false. Yeah. Uh, but I think that also kind of explains how you view the law differently through Christ. Mm-hmm. He's saying, like, I wanted to do the right thing, but I ended up doing things that were abhorrent to God. Right. You know, I ended up totally disregarding my neighbor mm-hmm. because I wanted to keep the law. Right. Uh, I think that's maybe, you know, I don't think that's an answer for all of it, but I think that's at least... It's a part of it. It's a part of it for Paul. Yeah, I think it's a part of it. The struggle, what do you think? Yeah, David. Come to the hope. It means we should prepare for it. Yeah, yeah. And we should expect it. And we should know what we're going to do as it happens because it is going to happen. So yeah. I, you know, I, I appreciate Paul being the first person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Becky. It just reminds us that we accept Christianity is not true Christianity. Yes, yes. And that there's a, you know, the saying, the struggle is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because evil is pervasive and mm-hmm. it's relentless. Yeah. And it's just hard and it's standing so high yeah. to be a disciple of Jesus. Right. And we can't do it on our own, but for us to recognize it, to think it's a trade off, mm-hmm. we're, we're in yeah. trouble. Yeah, I, 
That's what Paul's telling us. He says the struggle is real. You can't win the struggle on your own. There's no bootstrap Christianity going on here. Because we're not going to win this on our own. Nathan? I think that coming to this point in your life or realizing this is, is the start to being able to actually have a relationship with God. Yeah, yeah, and, I agree. And, you know, if you look back through, through Jesus' life and who he talked to, there were people who um, the law made them actually feel good about themselves mm-hmm. and better than other people. Right. And uh, like the Pharisees that said, thank you, God, that I'm not like that sinner. Right. Um, and what he said was, that's, you, that is just not how you can even approach God. Yeah. It's better to be the sinner who, who, who can see actually what's happening. Right. Yeah. And say, yeah. I don't even deserve this. Yeah. This is, this is where I am. Yeah. C.S. Lewis talked about that, that if, if your Christianity now, if your Christianity is a thing that make, puffs you up mm-hmm. and makes you feel superior to the sinners all around, right, right. Then, then maybe you're not comparing yourself to God. You're, yeah. you're yeah. a Pharisee right. comparing yourself yeah. to a sinner. Again. Yeah, yeah. But the closer I get to God, the, the more I, the more evident that is that, uh, you know, I've got zero. Right. And he's got it all. Yeah. The only way that I can have any anything that's good is if it's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. Yeah, that hits you in the heart there. Uh, J.I. Packer has an interesting quote. I really think nails this in, in keeping step with the Spirit. Packer summarizes this discourse well when he writes... Alive in Christ, Paul's heart delights in the law and wants to do what is good and right and thus keep it perfectly. You know, that's, that's our desire if we've been moved by grace. But whenever he measures what he has done, he finds that he has fallen short. Again, I can identify with that. From this, he perceives that the anti-God urge called sin though dethroned in his heart, still dwells in his own flawed nature. Thus, the Christian's moral experience, for Paul would not be telling his own experience to make theological points. Did he not think it typical? Is that his reach persistently exceeds his grasp and that his desire for perfection is frustrated by the discomposing and distracting energies of indwelling sin. I think that's what's going on. Paul is struggling for something he wants, but he can't quite get a hold of it. And he's honest about that. Uh, And I I think, as Nathan pointed out, we need to be honest about the struggle. And I think that's what Paul is telling us. And I think what Paul is describing in this section is realistic Christianity. we need to understand, I think as Becky pointed out, that the struggle is going on. It's real. We need to understand it. It can take us down if we want to try to pull ourselves up by our own power. It's not possible. We will not win that. Yeah, Jason. Um, I, I really think that Paul's kind of re- trying to relate to the Jews and their efforts to wipe themselves clean by using the law. And, and, and that struggle for being sinless is kind of like trying to wash a white table with a dirty rag. Mm-hmm. You're, you're leaving behind something and, and your right. best efforts are not right. even good enough. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's, he's leaving 
yeah. and that you really can be clean as yeah. uh, with what you want. Yeah, yeah, great thought. Um, but he, he's, he's talking about realistic Christianity, and I, I think he's leading us up to chapter 8, which is where the hope in all this is found. But uh, there's a couple, there's a string of thoughts I want to put in here. Uh, when God calls us to be Christians, He calls us to a lifetime uh, of struggles against sin. He called us to a lifetime of struggles against sin. That's just the reality. Uh, that's the truth of the matter. And we need to understand that we will never choose victory in this struggle under our own power, but only in the Spirit's power. By the Spirit's power and God's grace, our defeats will become less frequent. That's, that's true. I think that's true with all my heart that our defeats will become less frequent and will be overcome by the joy of supernatural victory in the struggle. We will find joy in the struggle because we will see, see battles we are winning instead of losing. And we will recognize it's by God's power and not our own uh, that victory is achieved. And it's a supernatural thing that we see in our life and we can rejoice in that. In this ongoing struggle against sin, we need to take full advantage of all weapons God has made available to us. He has not left us defenseless. He really has, and He's given us His Spirit. He's given us other weapons uh, uh, to go into battle with. Uh, I had, had some other passages I wanted us to read. I don't remember, Jim, who I gave these passages to. <laughs> but Jim was one of them, but how about Ephesians 6, 10 through 12? I think we're all familiar with this passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yeah. Again, Paul's describing realistic Christianity in Ephesians. How about... Go the other way. How about Philippians 3? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it mine because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it mine. The one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the, up, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, it's a beautiful passage. Uh, this idea that we press on. Uh, we leave the defeats behind us. Uh, we, we press on to the victory that, that lies ahead. And then Hebrews 12. I think we're familiar with this passage too. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in your striving against sin. Yeah. 
some beautiful passages, some real strength and encouragement there that, you know, we're not left alone in this battle at all, in this struggle. And um, God is standing with us. The Spirit is there uh, giving us strength and power to overcome. And, and um, you know, just the change that's possible in our lives. I, I, I think we, when we look back at what God's done uh, over a period of time, sometimes I don't know that we feel it in the moment. We wonder sometimes even where God is. God, you seem to have left me alone in the struggle. Where are you? But as time progresses, as we look back, uh, we're, I think we're staggered and amazed uh, by what God is doing uh, in our lives. And, and uh, it's, it's miraculous. It's supernatural uh, power uh, that we have access to. It's resurrection power, as Paul would describe it. Um, and uh, so we're not left alone in this struggle. Any, any closing thoughts about that? I want to say something about Romans 8 before we conclude, but I want to make sure we've talked about this, all we want to talk about it. Anybody have any thoughts? Yeah, bud. So, you've done a great job of um, making people think deeply about this to the point where you mentioned at the beginning of your class where we, we find it hard to sit on things that you uh, bring up because we have to yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Um, Romans 7, I'll never forget. <clears throat> I had been a Christian about two years when I read it for the first time. Uh, 1980. <clears throat> okay. And what I wanted to say about it was uh, it <clears throat> was amazing in, it, in that it helped me to realize that possible to continue this Christian life because remember how we all felt when we were first baptized mm-hmm. we felt really clean and sparkly and right, shiny right. and a couple of years of my um, conversion I felt really horrible mm-hmm. you know because yeah. of what Paul describes here and right. so like you said Paul <clears throat> of all people right if, if Paul can yeah. do it then he right. can provide me hope that yeah. both yeah. There is something there for me yeah. because of grace. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, it was a cloud lifted once again. Right. You, know, yeah. you, you have that lifted when you're first baptized. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the grace. Yeah. Thank you for the grace reminder once again. <laughs> well, that's that's beautifully put because I I think this becomes first person personal to me very quickly. And uh, uh, it's just a beautiful thing how it all moves through my life, how grace moves through my life and uh, puts me back together again. And uh, at a point in my life, I really needed that grace. I needed that love of God to understand that uh, there was no hope in where I'd come from and where I, that I needed a new direction. Yeah, Cindy. Mm-hmm. that we can't really put into words. And it's really comforting to know that, you know, for some reason, I went to church when you fall and you're younger and you think that everybody that wrote all these books is perfect. And you see that, that we feel, you know, right. that none of them are perfect. And they're, and they're not, you know, these people 
and his, his, you know, Paul and all of them writing these things and telling us these things, um, they're experiencing them this themselves firsthand. Yeah. You know, what, they're not um, in an ivory tower. No. They're not able to really relate with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful thoughts. Yeah, Haley. Mm-hmm. Before Jesus. Right. Yeah, he's saying this is present tense. Yeah. I mean, he did struggle with it then, but he also struggled with it right here. Yeah. And I think that's something that we have to remember. Right. Because when we were changed, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that suddenly we're doing it all right. Right. Away. Yeah. Um, we're still going to struggle. Yeah. And we're still going to have that battle within us right. of trying and still failing. Yeah. And it's okay. Yeah. Like David said, you know, if someone who is as spiritual as Paul right. still wrote, you know, when he was writing this, he was still struggling with that, mm-hmm. that gives me hope. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. oh, good. Okay. If Paul was still struggling yeah. with it, then I'm not weird or yeah. <laughs> or right. it's not strange that I am still struggling. Yeah. Yeah. We say, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Hey, Mary. That's not original. Thank you, Paul, for being real with us and leaving that for us. Uh, Next week, we're going to be in Chapter 8. Jeff's been doing a beautiful job in Chapter 8. I hope you guys have been enjoying his preaching series. Uh, So I come to Chapter 8, and I go, wow, what am I going to do with Chapter 8? Because it it has a lot of space. You know, it's personal. Chapter 8 is very personal for me. And... uh, what I'd like to challenge you guys to do, uh, and I know you've been sitting down with Chapter 8 already, but this week, sit down with it. Pick out a few verses that really mean something to you. I challenge you to verbalize what those verses mean to you. Uh, I'd even challenge you to write it down. Take a little bit more time to do that. But I'd like for you to spend some time with the verses in Chapter 8 that mean something to you and verbalize it what it means to you. And if you guys do that, you can help me teach Chapter (laughs) 8 next week. So, uh, 
So you know what? I'm thinking, what I'm thinking about chapter 8 next week is a reflections, uh, reflection on Romans 8. Uh, believe it or not, there's something in that chapter. I, I find it to be such an encouraging chapter, but there's something in that chapter that's kind of pulling on me. So we'll see where that is next Sunday, if it's still pulling on me. I might share that with you. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But uh, reflections on Romans 8 this week. Thank you, Jeff, for the wonderful series that you've been sharing with us. And uh, you guys, we're done. Thank you.